entering the Freedom Hut. We have a list of Obamagate on maskers. A big lockdown protest expected in Michigan. 36.5 million without jobs. 3 million more in just the last week. Update on the Flynn case and Judge Sullivan shenanigans. Parkland Coward gets his job back. And Never Trump is officially never Republican. Coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. We had some interesting news breaking late in the evening last night. I'm, I'm excited to break it all down for you today. You know, you have the, the two main stories that are going on in the country right now. You have still the overwhelming uh, majority of our attention, you know, most hours spent on the TV, radio, etc. It's all focused on COVID-19. And we've entered now the phase where it's a fight against the wrong response to, to the disease as much as it is now a fight against the disease. So there's that. And then you also have these big bombshells that have fallen as a result, largely of the acting director of national intelligence, Richard Grinnell, who is going in there and like he's like the Wyatt Earp of the intelligence community right now. He's just saying, you know what, we're going to just uh, declassify that thing that Adam Schiff really doesn't want people to know about. We're going to expose what a bunch of liars the Democrats and all their little stooges in the media running off to CNN and MSNBC to get contracts and push books full of lies where they promote themselves as heroes of the Republic. You know, James Comey, uh, among among others, we're going to we're going to dive into that for a little bit first today. I've got some stuff for you on the covid-19 response. Uh, and by that, I, I mean the, the fight for freedom. We are now in a fight for our freedom against a mentality and against a government overreach that is threatening to not just destroy our economy, but to to destroy our way of life. And I know that sounds extreme, but think about where we are now. We're two months into this and they keep lying to us and changing the story. And ultimately, it's you no longer have any freedom because you're a threat. Your breathing is a threat to other human beings. You must do what we say, everything that we say. We'll return to that. Let me start, though, with. Oh, my. This list of those who are doing the unmasking and those of you who have been listening to me for a while know one of the one of the advantages that I've had. And it was a huge advantage early on in my career in media is that I spent uh, five years as a CIA officer. And so I had some idea about national security. I knew a lot about Iraq and Afghanistan from working those issues. I wasn't just a CIA guy who learned about that stuff on the side. Those were the issues. I was on the Iraq desk and then was sent to the uh, was was essentially loaned to the Afghanistan desk. So I worked those issues, mostly counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Uh, But I also got quite a dose of the federal bureaucracy. And so I I understand what the nature of a bureaucracy is. Uh, This is where I get phrases like the giant self-licking ice cream cone, which we know is true of the bureaucracy. I, I also know uh, what will motivate the bureaucrats to move fast, what their ultimate aims are, that process is the product, that that mediocrity is the expectation. Excellence is suspect. These are all things you learn when you're in the federal bureaucracy because it's government. And ultimately, if you're not making decisions in government, 
you're usually just shuffling paper around. You know, if it's not very clear what your job is every day, you know, there's some there's some components of government where it's a really straightforward, really straightforward ask. Right. What's the what's the purpose of a cop? Now, why do you have a sheriff in your county? Oh, someone to enforce the law, someone with a gun to make sure the laws are enforced and to protect people and to hold criminals accountable to arrest them. OK, right. Firemen, et cetera, et cetera. You go through that. That's what is the purpose of somebody who's, you know, an, an assistant representative or rather a, an assistant, you know, deputy secretary to the trade representative for the blah, blah, blah. What do you really do all day? Eh, I don't know. You kind of just send emails, go to meetings. Anybody really care that you're there or not? Nah. Now, I was always uh, I found it remarkable that when I was in the CIA, there was always the the meeting and the onlookers. And this is a concept that I'm sure many of you are familiar with just from corporate America as well. But in the government, it's particularly clear. And you would know, you know, we go into these pretty large conference rooms sometimes and you'd have a meeting with, you know, dozens and dozens of people in it. And there would be all these folks. There'd be the people that are at the the focal point of the table. And then there'll be the people who are who know no one has to tell them that they should be sitting at the actual table where the discussion, you know, the long conference room table where the discussion's happening. And then you'll have near them the people who are the important seconds, if you will, the the aides, the assistants, whatever. And then you have like rows of chairs and stuff for people that were supposed to be at the meeting, but didn't really do anything. And if they weren't there, no one cares. And, and they'll ask, does anybody have anything to add? And if you're in that outer row, the answer is no. Let <laughs> me tell you right now, nobody who's nobody who's sitting at that head of the government, you know, the federal bureaucrats table. Uh, they don't care what you, the little, you know, GS9 sitting in the back row who are taking notes on something. They don't care what you think. So I understand how government functions in a way that you only can when you've spent time working in it and been there. And that's why I also know that there is a panic right now, because a lot of what you're seeing, and this is true for some elected officials, but it's also true for many, many very powerful, very senior bureaucrats, particularly in the intelligence and in the intelligence agencies and in the FBI and the upper echelons of federal law enforcement, their, their, their dirty laundry is being exposed. I mean, we're seeing stuff that they didn't think we would get to see. And this is where we have the unmasker situation. Now, I think we've discussed unmasking on the show before. It's pretty straightforward. You're not supposed to collect on U.S. persons when you are doing surveillance using intelligence methods. So... In order to protect people from this really unconstitutional, but they would say incidental. Incidental is not the same thing as accidental. Remember that they're they're going they're trying to target. They're trying to catch your conversation. They just are doing it because they want to hear what the foreign person is saying. That's that's what they will tell you. But this is a, effectively a warrantless surveillance. This is intelligence surveillance as opposed to law enforcement. There's no. You know, there's there's really no court protections. We've talked about FISA, for example. And so in unmasking, uh, you're oh, rather in masking. They decide that the American persons, their names are blocked out. And so you'll be reading a report and it'll say, you know, American person one or, you know, U.S. person one or whatever. They'll give it some some uh, designation. Talk to Osama bin Laden. You know, and this is what was said. Now, that's obviously a very clear conversation that. You would want to you would want to collect. But this uh, this also is the result of a lot of much lower level conversations. Nobody really cares about. So unmasking is when you're reading this report and you say, 
okay, I need to know, and you have to go to the originator, so whoever collected it, whichever agency, you go to the originator and you say, I need to know who this person is, and you have to give some explanation of it, and then you can find out who that person is. Now, you know, is it, is it something that happens? Yeah, it absolutely happens, but it's usually something that you would expect to occur from people who are involved in intelligence gathering and analysis, not say the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations a few weeks before she's about to lose her job. You, you wouldn't think that that would be somebody that would be doing this. And now we get to the General Flynn component of all of this. And look, I know there's a lot of, a lot of layers here and, and I know that people, you know, after a while, you sort of get you get tired of some of this stuff. You get tired of hearing uh, about these cases and about how all this went. But we're getting the truth now. So this is why it's important. Just this is the last couple of laps of a very long race, a race that ultimately I can't say that there'll be justice, but at least there'll be clarity. There will be truth at the end of this. I don't think that there will be justice, though. Because I don't believe that the the wrongdoers will be punished. Your only hope for that is Durham, the Durham investigation. And I would not put a lot of stock. I would not put a lot of a lot of faith behind that. Not because I think Durham is a dishonest guy. I, I don't think that's the case. I just believe that they won't. They'll always be able to hide. And this is really what what we've seen. This is the way the abuse by these Obamagate conspirators. And it was a conspiracy. The way that they were able to get they will get away with it is just to say they believed in good faith things that turned out not to be true and that the incorrect belief at the time was politically useful to them. That's just incidental. You know, I just happen to believe this very fraudulent report about Russia collusion because I'm that foolish and that naive, can't get mad at me for that. And then I took action based on my own stupid belief that this is what happened and that it was going after a political enemy. That's a coincidence. That's really their justification. That's really their justification. So the Senate, it was not DNI Grinnell. DNI Grinnell was involved in the process of giving the DOJ information that it wanted here because of the unmasking stuff around Flynn, because really what we know now, what's been proven is that there, what's been proven is that there was a conspiracy uh, to frame. I mean, they framed General Flynn. That's what they did. It was a frame job. And so we, we want to know, and the DOJ and Attorney General Barr want to know more about how this happened and what the different components were that were involved. So the Senate, uh, Senator Rand Paul was making a lot of noise about this yesterday, released the list, the unmasking list. It was properly declassified. And here's what you have on it. Below is a list of recipients who may have received Lieutenant General Flynn's identity in response to a request processed between 8th of November 2016 and the 31st of January 2017 to unmask an identity that had been generically referred to in an NSA foreign intelligence report. Each individual was an authorized recipient of the original report, and the unmasking was approved through the NSA standard process, which review, which includes a review of the justification for the request. Only certain personnel are authorized to submit unmasking requests in the NSA system. 
the principals are identified. We cannot confirm they saw the unmasked information. Now, this would usually be some pretty boring stuff. There's a lot of, you know, if you're working on a specific country account or issue account, you know, if you're working on a non-proliferation office, let's say, in the intelligence community or our terrorism office, in the intelligence community, and, you know, there's a U.S. person who's captured in a, you know, in a surveillance report of someone you think is a known terrorist financier, you might want to unmask that guy. You might want to know what's going on here. And that could also possibly be something that, uh, you know, you, you would, well, now you get into how to, does law enforcement get to use this information? It's not a, it's not a, it's not a uh, duly predicated law enforcement search, but are, does this ever, does, does sometimes this information manage to find its way? Sometimes it finds its way to a Washington Post reporter. That's what we found out when it involves General Flynn. So, yes, of course, these rules and regulations are not perfect and they are not uh, they are not always respected. But who asked for remember, this is specific to General Flynn's identity. Who asked about this right around the time? I mean, it was the conversation between Flynn and Kizilyak was on the 28th of December 2016. My birthday. Oh, Buck, it's your birthday. You're going to. Yeah, it was my birthday. And General Flynn, as we know, was framed up by the FBI. And a big part of that was the leak of classified phone intercept information to The Washington Post. And all these Obama people, they're all upset. You know, they're all sore losers. You got to remember this. All they all thought that the Hillary administration and all their friends were going to be running D.C. and they were going to be in power. Even if they're even if Obama had to leave, Hillary was going to come in and you know all this stuff. It was going to be great. Right. It was going to be fine. Fantastic. Oh, no. Trump comes in and uh, he beat her and they couldn't handle it. So that's why in the unmasking request list you have here, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. The 30th of November 2016, the 2nd of December, the 7th of December, the 14th of December, the 23rd of December and the 11th of January. Unmasking Flynn, unmasking Flynn. Now, even if this was all completely legitimate, are we supposed to believe that these people didn't realize they keep reading classified intercepts of conversations involving the incoming national security advisor, Michael Flynn? They, they didn't think that this was a little bit dude that this is just prob- put aside the legality. Is this ethical? You're reading about your political opponents using the U.S. intelligence process to do it. This is a backdoor on constitutional protection. That's what this is, just like FISA. And remember what we saw with FISA? Oh, it's sacred. Nobody would abuse FISA. Oh, yeah? FISA's a joke. Nobody was paying attention. You could put false. You basically read something. If you're an FBI agent, you could read something in a news article and say, yeah, I saw this thing. Or have some confidential informant write up some report on a Word doc and just, you know, pass that along. Yeah, that's what my confidential informant told me. The FISA they got open on Carter Page was appallingly flimsy and false. But remember what they were telling us? Oh, nobody would ever abuse FISA. FISA works like a Swiss watch. Mm -mm. And now we look at unmasking. Oh, unmasking happens all the time. Nothing to see here. No big deal. If there's nothing to see here, why are they so upset at the release of these names? Why, for example, is, uh, you know, are are the Democrats and people like Shifty Schiff so angry? Oh, I, I have some theories about that, but it's pretty clear, isn't it? As I go through these names, you'll see. Obamagate is real, folks. 
The Obama administration in its departing weeks. Okay, think about that. They're leaving power. They tried to sabotage the incoming administration and they used the law enforcement agencies, the press and the deep state actors to do so. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Oh, who are the names? I'm sorry. I got so excited to tell you about all the lies and how upset the libs are here about the unmasking. Who are the names on the list of the people requesting what just happened, just happened to be the identity of Lieutenant General Flynn? Who, who, oh, Samantha Powers, I told you that one. James Clapper, 2nd of December, 28th of December, 7th of January. Hmm. John Brennan, director of the CIA, 14th of December, 15th of December. You go down this list, it's pretty scary, folks. Uh, You also have, who else is on here? You have James Comey, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And this is my, and there's a whole bunch of other, oh, I'm I'm trying to remember to make sure I get all them in here. You have the uh, McDonough, the White House chief of staff, Obama's chief of staff. He wanted to know. Wasn't that interesting? And then you have finally, and this is probably the best one. Yeah, Dennis McDonough. Yeah. And then you finally have uh, Joseph R. Biden on the 12th of January, 2017. Biden can barely remember what planet he's on. But we are to believe that Joe Biden had an urgent need to know to expose the identity of a U.S. person that just happened to be Lieutenant General Flynn about, what, 10 days before Trump's inauguration? It was really, it was that important to know what General Flynn was talking about? Or was this just about curiosity and the ability to exploit something that we had hoped wouldn't happen? We were acting on the premise that there was a certain level of government in which people would conduct themselves in good faith when it came to things like unmasking. That was proven wrong. The authoritarian, power-mad, socialist libs used this to spy on political opponents on their way out the door. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. These rumors have been going around for years that the President Obama's administration was abusing this power of unmasking. And this sounds like they were abusing it to go after a political opponent, which I think is a very serious offense and should be investigated. And the fact that President Vice President Biden is directly involved with unmasking a political opponent. Think about it. You remember we went through this thing called impeachment? They said the President Trump was using the government to go after a political opponent. This is Vice President Biden using the spying powers of the United States to go after a political opponent. He's caught red-handed here. Vice President Biden's caught red-handed eavesdropping on a political opponent's phone calls. That, to me, is alarming. Let's also remember that General Flynn, in a sense, is, is part of the uh, is, was part of the Trump campaign, right? So this this was occurring. I mean, the the and this was only the window they looked at. I, I would want to know how about the window of the three months before it, 
Who, who else from the Trump campaign, if it's so routine, if it's so normal that there's all these unmasking requests that just happen to be the incoming national security advisor, folks? This isn't just, you know, some random person who's talking to some strange people overseas. And No, if this is so normal, how many how many of these conversations were intercepted in the months before involving Flynn? Uh, this is what I really want to know. Were there conversations intercepted with Donald Trump himself? Was was the presidential candidate for the opposition party? I, I, I don't know, but they're telling us this is no big deal. This just happens, man. Totally just happens. Was Trump intercepted? Was Pence intercepted? We know that the vice president and the president's chief of staff, which means the president himself saw it, by the way, that means Obama, we know that they were looking at conversations that Flynn's having. Intercepts of conversations. And they're, and they're now telling us, oh, this happens all the time. Totally normal. Nothing to see here. We're supposed to believe this is normal? Okay. Well, let's extend that theory out a little bit. How many Trump campaign officials during the campaign were caught in unmasking by U.S. surveillance? And do we really even have a Fourth Amendment? Do we really even have any reasonable expectation of privacy? You know, do, do we do we think that there has to be a warrant or not for these kinds of government intrusions? It seems like we keep coming across answers that say, no, the government, if the government wants to hear your stuff, they can. And they'll make some justification up for it. Just like right now, as we're seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic, the government now has just claimed for itself total control over you. And if you disagree, you're putting people's lives at risk. If you want to live a normal human life right now, there are government officials all across the country, including in the federal public health apparatus, who will tell you you're putting other people at risk and therefore you're not allowed to have those freedoms. What's it going to be like during flu season? You're going to tell me to stay home then, too? You're going to tell me I have to wear a mask then, too? You're going to tell me that I uh, have no, I mean, I have no basic autonomy. And lock me house arrest for what? There they look. The government has taken all this power into its hands. The government's also playing with fire here. And there's if this thing gets out of control, it gets out of control fast and it gets ugly. So they need to back off. This stuff is nuts that's going on in some of these blue states. But really, maybe in a way, you know, let me let me I see it gets me gets me fired up and I I don't want to lose the train of thought right now in the unmasking. But I do want you to have have that thought exercise with me. If this is so normal, if this is so legitimate, who else were they unmasking in the Trump campaign? How many how many Trump convert? If if they're going to tell me that it, it's oh, oh we, we would never read Trump's uh, conversation, never read a Trump transcript. Why? They've told us that this is fine, that this happens, that there's no problem with it. It's incidental. They didn't know who it was. Oh, really? You don't know who's caught a senior U.S. official, blacked out name, speaking to the Russian ambassador. Hey, we're going to be in charge soon. So when we're in charge, just know that we'll have a good relationship and just wait a couple weeks, buddy. Yeah, they have no idea who that is. This is what they're this was an argument I was seeing yesterday. You morons making this argument out there don't know a damn thing. You, the the text is already in the report. I used to read these reports all day long. It's my job. I was a little cubicle nerd in the intel community reading these reports all day, all day, all day. We know who it is. 
But if you're going to make the claim and if you're going to leak it and if you're going to use law enforcement, you better be darn sure, right? You better be very sure that you know exactly what it is. It, you, know, you can't go to the FBI and say, oh, I think there's a violation of the Logan Act here unless you're sure that you know, you know the name is. I mean, theoretically, you think it's General Flynn, but maybe it's some other incoming, you know, maybe it's General Flynn's, you know, number two, or, you know, it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's Michael Anton coming in to be a National Security Council spokesperson or, you know, somebody, I mean, who knows, right? KT McFarland, the Deputy National Security Advisor, right? So you got to be sure, but I mean, you kind of know, you kind of know, and that's the whole point. Shifty Shift doesn't like any of this. Oh, no. Another place where their logic all falls apart. Shifty Schiff is upset. Why? If this is so normal, if this is so routine, why does the exposure of this information look so bad? Also, the fact that Biden, two weeks before he's leaving office, just happens to want to know about a General Flynn conversation. Um, also, I would like to know, can we do a we should do a similar search. They, they would have it. A similar search of when Obama took over, who wants to guess if there was a, a, a series of unmasking requests like this involving Obama or one of his you know, top three national security personnel, you know, vice president, national security advisor, you know, incoming, you name it, White House, you know, White House chief of staff. Who wants to bet that there wasn't this series of unmasked, totally normal unmasking requests? These people are liars. They're liars. They're clowns, although it's very unfunny. It's actually really disturbing what they did. And the president knows this. He understands this. This is uh, what he has to say about it. Play clip 24. Well, the unmasking is a massive, uh, it's a massive thing. It's, uh, I just got a list. It's, it's, who can believe a thing like this? And I watched... Biden yesterday on Good Morning America being interviewed by one of your colleagues, George Stephanopoulos, and he said he knew nothing about anything. He has no idea. He knows nothing about anything. Nothing at all. And then it gets released today that he was a big unmasker. So how do you know nothing if you're one of the unmaskers? It's one of the very big stories, and I suspect you'll have, if it's possible, even bigger stories coming out. I think that may be true. I hope that's true. We do deserve answers here. Let's also recall that in the last week or so, we've seen the behind closed door transcripts from the House investigation of Russia collusion, which showed us that Clapper and Brennan and all these. Oh, my gosh. Liars, liars, liars going on TV. Oh, there's oh, there's definitely collusion. They were lying about it. Schiff was lying about it because he knew he had heard the witnesses say, oh, I don't, I don't know anything about it. I don't think, I didn't see any actual evidence. I mean, come on, we're under oath now. Schiff is a disgrace, but he's a hatchet man for his party, so they don't care. They just they just view Schiff as a as a a weapon of disrepute. You know, they, they view Schiff as a guy who cannot be trusted. And that's great because he'll just do their dirty work for them. Try they can trust him, but the, the country can't trust him, right? But he's he's he is uh ugh. Oleaginous, great word for him. Play 21. Well, what's going on is uh, this is the president's effort to distract from the fact that uh, under his watch, 
We've now lost 80,000 American lives, and our economy is in the worst shape it's been since the Great Depression. Uh, this is what this is about. Uh, they want to distract attention. Uh, they want to create some kind of a counter-narrative that, no, it was actually Obama committing crimes, not Donald Trump. Uh, it was all the Obama administration of figures. It was Adam Schiff. Don't pay attention to Americans dying right now. Don't pay attention to Americans unemployed right now. Um, but instead, let's focus on this counter-narrative uh, that it was Hillary that must have colluded. It was Obama that must have been, uh, you know, committing unethical acts uh, instead of Donald Trump. But the American people see through this. Um, they are focused right now okay, on making enough, sure enough. that they can stay. Can't take it anymore. Sorry. Just notice how Schiff is saying, oh, Trump is trying to distract you. No, we're learning very important stuff about an investigation that consumed the country for years. And Schiff tries to distract everybody by saying, well, look at what's going on in the rest of the country. Yeah, we know, you jerk, what's going on in the rest of the country. You don't have to tell us about that. What's his answer here? He's a, he's a disgusting liar. He always has been, always will be. The Democratic Party claims that Trump lied. Yeah, Trump has some issues with uh, with facts and figures sometimes. He exaggerates. He, he BSs. I know. I'm not, I'm not delusional. But he doesn't stare the country in the face and just intentionally mislead and lie about stuff that matters. Pelosi does that. Schiff does that. Schumer does that. They don't care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So what to make of Obamagate? We are joined by my friend David Reboy. He is a Republican strategist and national security analyst. He's down in Florida. Mr. Reboy, good to have you, sir. Great to be here. What do you think about this list yesterday and all the explanations we're hearing for why, say, Joe Biden wanted to know about a Flynn phone call two weeks before he had to figure out where he was going to be resting his head because it wasn't going to be as vice president anymore. Well, in Joe Biden's case, it's it's more plausible than for the others that he had no idea what he was doing um, or why he was asking for the name to be unmasked. But, I mean, you know, I mean, let, let's 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 be real. The first thought that came to my mind when I saw this this kind of weird, massive collection of, uh, of folks who are doing the unmasking, most of whom have no real legitimate reason to be asking for this kind of intelligence in the first place, is maybe they all sat down. It's possible that 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 uh, that they all sat down and they said, OK, if we all unmask, then the. If we ever get caught, the weight of this will not will fall on all of us and not just some of us. That's uh, that's what I was thinking immediately um, as as to why so many people were really doing this. And we, and we know, too, that there was a, an Obama directive that allowed the easier um, transit of this kind of information from uh, one government agency to another. Uh, what's also getting lost in this debate is the fact that I mean, what makes this really criminal is is the leak, the original leak to uh, I think it was to to Ignatius um, at the uh, at, at the post about uh, about Flynn's call, right? Which was completely illegal, and we still haven't had any kind of legal accountability, law enforcement accountability on that. Um, as far as I know, there's never been an investigation. We'll see about what uh, what Durham is digging up, but this whole thing has taken so much time. 
that I'm, I'm just afraid that, um, I mean, I, we know the media is going to try to pass this off as old news. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say the, the, I think last night, at least MSNBC and CNN, I don't believe either of them were really covering the unmasking. Now I'd have to update that. But as of last night, there was basically no coverage of it. And, and now we're seeing that the, the pandemic is going to be the, the go-to for when they don't want to talk about something that's not the pandemic, which is a whole, a whole conversation we can get into with you a little bit. Uh, all they have to do is just say, how could you focus on anything else right now? You know, how could anything else be of, of any importance? That's what Adam Schiff was doing before, which is troubling. I, I also want to ask you, since we got you, you're, you're down in Florida and you're of, of sound mind about these things. Somehow your governor has been the target of, and your state, but particularly because it's a Republican governor and it's a swing state that we all know is really important, oh, Florida's heading for disaster. Florida actually hasn't hit disaster at all. It's done pretty well, given what the numbers, the population size, and others would suggest. Meanwhile, Governor Cuomo is a hero, and New York is a disaster. How, tell, you know, how, how do you see that as a Floridian? Look, I, I really like DeSantis. I think he's been great throughout um, all of this. Uh, I live in an area that is, we've got three counties on the uh, southeastern part of the state, which is, uh, which is Miami-Dade and Broward and, and Palm Beach. And these three counties comprise most of the Democratic uh, uh, part of the state. And as you would imagine, uh, for that reason, they've been eager to close down, lock down, and slow to want to open back up. And uh, we see already West Palm is starting to, uh, West Palm is, is open, I believe, already. They've already got restaurants open, they're social distancing. But, um, but Broward and, uh, and, and Dade are, are not. So, uh, so within the state, this is a, interesting, people know that. So within the state, the blue areas are more on lockdown than the red areas are. At least that's what you're seeing right now. That's, that, right. That's, that's correct. If I were to jump in the car and drive over to Naples on the West Coast right now, I could go to a restaurant and, uh, and, uh, and, and have dinner. But, um, but, but I can't. So I, I sort of I understand the situation that DeSantis is, is in with these kind of local blue areas that are determined to, to shut down. Local blue, very high population uh, areas that, that are, are determined to, to, I guess, be the last ones to, to open back up. But I think they will. I think, uh, I think this area, especially Broward and, and Miami-Dade now, are going are gonna to be open um, shortly, shortly, after, uh, shortly after West Palm, and then, and then all Florida will be open. Um, you know, uh, DeSantis has been reamed out in, in the press. I mean, you know, the, the first thing I think was was with the, um, the the big Florida offensive against him was was against opening some of the beaches in Jacksonville. And they predicted, you know, they, the, the media went into absolute meltdown hysteria mode. And um, I mean, I guess it was it was nothing compared to what they did w when Georgia opened up, which is they said, the, There's going to be like mass uh, murder. I mean, Georgia's that, been open for three weeks now, and they've been predicting mass murder every day, and Georgia's fine. I mean, it's not perfect, right. but it's doing At fine. Atlanta, and the mayor of Atlanta took to the Atlantic, I, I think, or, or, or some other outlet to say, you know, how, how irresponsible and terrible it is. And yet, and yet, they seem to be doing fine. Um, I've always been of the opinion that we're, we as, as a country, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a human race, are going to have to just walk through the fire here when it comes to this virus because there's no uh, there's no um, 
uh, vaccine around the corner. And at some point, you're going to have to open up. I think it's, it's I mean, and there's going to be risk agree that it's well past time that we do so. Yeah. And it's not going to be perfect, but it's time. It's time we do so. Well, I'm, I'm glad at least Florida, there's some pockets of sanity down there. Uh, Dave Reboy, everybody, political strategist. Check him out on Twitter. Uh, follow him there. David, thanks so much for making the time for us, man. Get some sun. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you were director of national intelligence, did you see any direct evidence of collusion between General Flynn or any Trump campaign official with the Russians? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, uh, of course, collusion is not a, a formally defined term, certainly in, in a legal sense. But if you if you read the intelligence community assessment, particularly the highly classified version and as well as the unclassified version, you won't find the C word anywhere in that report. Does the absence of evidence of collusion indicate to you that no requests for unmasking should have happened? If you had seen no evidence of collusion there, why ask for names like this in the intelligence reports? Well, there could have been, as I say, uh, other reasons why you would unmask. Um, again, when you read the ball read of the report, may not tell you what exactly uh, is going on. So whether it was collusion or, or what, uh, you're, what you're trying to determine, does this pose a threat to uh, a national security? Uh, you know, uh, the DNI, uh, Clapper, uh, who uh, goes on CNN. Uh, That's right. This is the guy that was at the top of the intelligence community. And I, I remember interacting with this guy when I was just a, just a young buck. And it was the same thing then. Uh, uh, leave the folder there. Uh, uh. And they've elevated him to being some kind of intel wizard. No, the guy's just been around forever. He, this is not somebody that you want to go to for astute analysis of, of anything. And notice how even at this stage, you'll, you'll still get the same thing. Even at this stage, you'll have people who will, will say, well, there could have been or there sh- may, maybe we would have found or no, they, there was nothing. They were all wrong. How were they all so wrong on this? How did how do we end up talking about Russia collusion that didn't happen for three years This was the biggest story of the Trump administration until a global pandemic came along. Now, of course, they want to pretend like no one should even think about it. No one should even talk about it. But that's absurd. Uh, Look, I I don't want to get too more uh, too much more into the unmasking situation. I I would just say this uh, for right now. If it's no big deal, why did they not want us to know? And now that we know. What, what are we supposed to do with this uh, knowledge? How are we supposed to act given that it's clear there was political targeting of the people around uh, Trump and notably General Flynn? But who knows what other political targeting was going on with this kind of process, too? Uh, I think there should be even more declassification. I think we should see. I, I want to see what these reports were that they were, you know, they can they can redact them as necessary. But we should see what what's the content here that they were unmasking now they'll never do this because of the sensitivities but that would really let us know then then you'd really get the answers if you could see oh yeah they really needed to know who this was they first of all they couldn't basically figure it out and second of all why why do you not have do you not have any 
expectation of privacy if you speak to somebody who happens to be a foreigner? Can they just listen in on, on phone calls and you no longer have any? Sorry, the national security impetus, uh, the national security desire overrides whatever constitutional protection you have? Uh, apparently the answer is yes. It's not okay, folks. It's not okay. You can't trust these status libs. That's the problem. They don't operate in good faith. A lot of our law is set up in a way, and, and, and in a sense, I, I think this is a very, it's, it's actually a very important reminder for all of us. And, and I, I wanted to take just a pause to say this much about it. Um, the Flynn case is the reminder that all of our laws and our system you know, look, they, they require faithful execution and basic decency or else nobody's safe and no right is secure. Anyone can be investigated or prosecuted if officials make decisions and those officials are stupid, vicious and motivated by left wing ideology. Anyone could be subjected to this. And if you think and here's my brilliant transition, if you think that the judges, the courts will save you, you're wrong. There are deep staters wearing robes, just like there are deep staters at the top of the intelligence community, the top of the FBI bureaucracy. Here, I bring you the latest in the judge. Remember, this is all now related to, to Michael Flynn. The Judge Sullivan prosecution, uh, or what they're doing with the prosecution of Michael Flynn, which really now is completely in the hands of this judge, Judge Emmett Sullivan, who had an outburst that he ended up apologizing for. I mean, he, he lost it in court and started talking about Flynn betraying his country. Uh, Sullivan never even stopped to think who Flynn was betraying the country on behalf of. Is it Turkey? Is it Russia? Is it someone else? It didn't matter. Just It was just too enticing a storyline that Flynn was somehow a traitor. So that the, the people that bought into this, never stopped to dig into the details. But here you have uh, General Flynn no longer facing the DOJ actively prosecuting him. And this was the big news last week. And I was saying to you, and you know this, I was saying, well, we got to see what the judge does, though. I was a little worried about this. I was concerned about this. Um, you know, was it? It's not over till the, it's not over till the Zoftic female vocalist engages in singing you know that's that's where we are and there's no singing right now because judge sullivan has requested an amicus brief from a retired clinton appointee named john gleason a, a retired federal judge to provide the court with the reasoning uh with, with a with reasons why the Flynn prosecution should continue effectively why Flynn should be sentenced and, and continue to be found guilty. Even though the DOJ has said this case never what the DOJ has said is that this case now never should have been brought. This never should have happened. Can you imagine how is this any different from, say, if there was, you know, DNA evidence that exonerates that truly exonerates somebody, not that they make believe it does, which does there. There's there's some DNA stuff that we could talk about another time. Where, okay, I mean, they they think that this anyway, I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen Making a Murderer. I want to check that one out for sure. I think those guys were guilty, but that's just my gut, my gut instinct. I've seen a few of the episodes. I haven't seen all of it. Um, that's what I, I was thinking with the DNA stuff. I was like, ah, it's not always. Is it? But imagine that there was clear cut and this does happen. There's clear cut evidence of DNA that exonerates somebody. 
And the judge was just like, nah, now nah, we're still going to hold you in prison. You're not you're not getting out. And even the prosecutor, even the prosecutors, that that's really the way to line this up. Even the prosecutors like, look, we're really sorry. This guy was exonerated. We, we never should have brought this. That that is what has happened here. The Department of Justice has said we're dropping this. This never should have gone down. And the judge is like, yeah, I don't know about that. I, I think I think I'm going to carry this thing through. So he brings on this Clinton judge, John Gleason, uh, to file an amicus brief to outline why the charges should not be dropped and also to put forward an argument for how to prosecute Flynn for perjury. Here's what the here's what the the judge's order says. The court exercises its inherent authority to appoint the Honorable John Gleason as amicus curiae to present arguments in opposition to the government's motion to dismiss. It is so ordered that amicus curiae shall address whether the court should issue an order to show cause why Flynn should not be held in uh, in criminal contempt for perjury. What the heck is this? It's this judge's call. And yes, the judge does have a right to do this. This is also a reminder, my friends. Judges have a judges are supposed to be referees. They have a ton of authority in that courtroom. You know that a judge can. They don't usually do this. Very few people generally know this. A judge can set aside a jury verdict. It is within a judge's power when a jury says guilty. A judge can say, yeah, thanks. Meh. Gonna let this person go. Gonna set aside that verdict. You're free to leave. Judge can do that. Their power is tremendous. It's also why, you know, it's really the concentration of state power in that courtroom. Which is why even if you mouth off to a judge, you know, not a lot of people you can mouth off to who can say, you know what, you're going to go spend a few days in prison for that one. Judges can do that. They have a lot of authority in that courtroom. And, you know, the reality here is that I think they're going to force Trump to pardon Flynn. That's the that's the way that the deep state is going to get back at this guy. He didn't even do anything. I mean, now it's clear the guy didn't do anything. He didn't lie. He didn't do anything. He's like having conversations with people all the time. And he, you know, misremembered what he said to the ambassador about something or like misremembered if he talked to him about it. It doesn't even matter. If you say, oh, Buck, he lied. The FBI agents interviewing him who had the transcripts, they didn't think he lied at first. So how clear was the lie? But. Oh, no. Oh, no. They oh, and and Andy McCabe lied twice. FBI director, but they're not going to prosecute him. Why? Just because because the because the bureaucrat establishment likes him because he's one of these little government stooges who was always first and foremost about the permanent governing class. Wasn't really it wasn't really about what was ethical, what was right. It was about making sure the machine continues to be in charge. This should be troubling for all of us now as we see across the country how badly the government machine wants to continue to be in charge. They do not want to give this up. They do not want to relinquish any of the power that they have taken into their hands. And we should have seen this coming. I was warning about it. I've been warning about it for a long time. You can just go back in my Twitter feed if you want to see. I said, uh, what, six weeks ago now, we'll, we'll go from panic demanding government action to the recognition that the government is inept and stupid, which is where we pretty much are, to the government wielding even more power to tell us to shut up and do as we're told once we've realized they're stupid and they've taken too much power into their hands. That's where we are. And this was the, this was the expected trajectory of what would happen in response to this. But anyway, with, with Judge Sullivan here, they're going to force uh, Trump to pardon Flynn. 
And then they're going to say this was all political. So this is just all about sullying his reputation at this point and giving the left wing loon Democrats one last chance to frame this issue against Flynn in a way where he looks, you know, looks like a bad guy. He looks like he did something wrong, even though we know he did nothing wrong. I, I feel badly. I mean, that, that Flynn has been dragged through so much at this point. It must be horrible. Can you imagine your life savings drained, fired from your wife? The guy got to be national security advisor, supposed to be the pinnacle of his career. And he's fired before he even starts the job over this, over nothing. I mean, you know, he's got an ego and, he, you know, he's got he's a human being with feelings, too, and aspirations and goals. They did this to this guy over what? And it's Samantha Power and Obama and Biden, these people, they're all so in love with themselves and they're just disgraceful. They lack decency and think that they're superior. That's what's really troubling. You see this with oh, all, all the Obama administration officials. That's the constant, right? They're vicious, petty little tyrants. Whenever you give them any power, whenever they can have the media, they can sick the media on somebody or attack somebody or destroy them. Um, and never any grace, never any forgiveness, never any sense whatsoever that they're going to rise above and, and treat people that disagree with them or that see things differently than them with any respect. They don't do that. That was really a defining characteristic of the people in the Obama White House around him. I mean, that was and, and Obama himself always viewed the other side with disdain, always. So why is it surprising in all that they would abuse the powers they had in this way? It's, it's not surprising. If anything, it's just. A shame that it took us so long to get this proof. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Maybe it's the opinion of politicians that these protesters are just violent racists. But the Michigan state legislature has actually filed a lawsuit against you, claiming that your state of emergency extension to May 28th is unlawful. Um, since they did not approve it, are you acting beyond your authority here? And do you understand why there are so many concerned citizens about government overreach at this point? Of, of course. And you know what? I think that that is a robust debate that we should absolutely have. The fact of the matter is every decision that I've made has been on the right side of the Constitution and always centered by epidemiology, facts and science and to save lives. Do you believe her? I don't. I would love to hear from some more of uh, Team Buck, Michigan. Let me know what you think about what's going on in your home state here. But uh, that's Governor Whitmer, who... This there's a very fundamental point here about a temporary state of emergency versus an open ended state of emergency. Right. And we all understand this. And, and there's there's some there's some gray area here in the law. But everyone's under everyone also in principle recognizes that, you know, it's one thing. Here's the perfect example. Cops run up to your front door, bang on your front door, say, hey, look, we, we you know, we think there's a gas leak down the street we're gonna we need every we need everybody out for a few hours while we check it out are you gonna say no you don't have a warrant i probably not right you're gonna say oh whoa whoa okay yeah thank you officer and you're gonna take your family out you know that's that's a, that's a, a state of emergency situation cops run to your door different situation bang 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 i mean with not guns obviously with their hand on the that was a bad you know bang 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 is not what you want to hear from cops um knock 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 thank you that's knock 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 was the onomatopoeia that i was looking for fun word to say producer mark that's the word of the day today onomatopoeia i but used to know how to spell it 
Yeah. But uh, you hear that you hear that knock at the door and you go to it and they say, hey, hey, we're really worried about a gas leak in the area. So we're going to need you to clear out of your house for a month or so. And we'll call you and we'll let you know maybe when you can go back. It might be a few months. We're not sure, but you have to get out now. Okay, you might say you might say, Buck, you know what? I'm going to leave that house for a little bit. But all right. What, what happens when you call the uh, let, let's say you go stay at your Aunt Ethel's, the famous Buck Saxon show Aunt Ethel. I don't have one, but that's the aunt we always talk about. And and you, you call the city, you know, you call the city health department or the police department, what you'd call. You say, OK, can I go back to my house? No, no, sorry. No, that emergency about the gas leak. We're going to keep we're going to keep extending that one. We're going to push that one a little bit more. And then you do it for more weeks and then for more weeks. At what point have they exceeded their legal authority, right? At, at what point is there no longer a state ability to tell you, you know, sorry, your home is not your home, your stuff is not your stuff, and you have no rights? That's what we're up against. I mean, I, I know maybe I got a little too deep into the, the analogy here, um, but that's where we are. That's what's happening in these different states. A state of emergency, and this is also the whole mentality, the whole problem now is that we were told 15 days to to flatten the curve, slow the spread to flatten the curve, right? These are really related concepts. Okay, well, we, we went along with this in good faith. And I think, that, I, I think that that still, under the circumstances, was a decision that, that's defensible, right? That we all had to just sort of get ready and, and understand what's going on. We all needed to see what's going on uh, and, to, and to prep and get facilities in place and have a national focus on it. But it was a little bit like, a storm is coming. Everybody has to clear out of this area. Once the storm hits, you know, we'll come back and we'll rebuild. But never knows that there's a that it's limited in time and scope, limited in duration and clear limitations. Well, what, what is this? Can't leave your house. Can't go see people. Got to wear. I don't even get We're going to talk more about the mask thing. Um, there's a protest happening. Look, I. I understand why people are doing open carry at some of these Michigan protests, but, you know, it does for the national level messaging. It, it results in all that gets focused on by the lib media. And I'm just talking about what's more effective messaging, folks. OK, I'm not saying that I don't understand why people want to enjoy their Second Amendment rights and want to remind the tyrants that uh, they will not be able to just endlessly do whatever they want. To people, I get that. I just hope that these protests uh, don't. That, you know, the, you know, would be the best thing for the for the for the lib authoritarians if something ugly happens at one of these protests. That's what the authoritarians want. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, team! I just saw this. So you know, we have this whistleblower. They're calling him a whistleblower named Doctor Bright, who is testifying today, and uh, he is telling us we have the world's greatest scientists. Let us lead. Let us speak without fear of retribution. Oh, boy. Um, you know, the, the, the part of the problem we have here, and there's, there's a lot of stuff that's going on with, with the, the, the scientific community. Somehow the people that speak out on behalf of science are, are all like leftists. Why, why is Not all scientists are leftists, but the people that are always, listen to the scientists, they're all libs. This was congressional testimony uh, from... This guy, Dr. Rick Bright, the ousted vaccine chief, that's what they're calling him. And he's now getting his moment of trash Trump fame. Right. Trump is doing a bad job and all this other stuff. 
the, the Donald has already responded to him. I don't know the so-called whistleblower Rick Bright. Never met him or even heard of him. But to me, he's a disgruntled employee, not liked or respected by people I spoke to and who, with his attitude, should no longer be working for our government. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, here is what the here is what the Department of Health and Human Services, where he used to work. They released a statement. HHS put out a press release on this guy. This, this guy's being treated as a hero today. Oh, he's he's amazing. Here's what they're saying about him. Rick Bright. This is from the Department of Health and Human Services publicly. Rick Bright was transferred from his role as BARDA director to lead a bold new one billion dollar testing program at NIH critical to saving lives and reopening America. Mr. Bright has not yet shown up for work, but continues to collect his $285,000 salary while using his taxpayer-funded medical leave to work with partisan attorneys who are politicizing the response to COVID-19. His whistleblower complaint is filled with one-sided arguments and misinformation. HHS is reviewing the complaint and strongly disagrees with the Allegations and characterizations made by Rick Bright. Ouch. Ouch. HHS is having none of it from this guy. Now, I would like to I would like to just come out right now and say, you know, there's going to be no matter no matter what Trump does. We've all known all along that they're going to blame him for everything. And they're going to be doing this. It doesn't matter if Trump said, I, I now give up my position as leader of this response. King Fauci will make all of our choices about how to deal with the virus. King Fauci now has my proxy. They would still they would still find ways to blame him for everything that's going on. And one of the things that came up today during this testimony is that they're saying that there are thousands and thousands of people who have died because of Trump, you know, what's you know, what, and, and oh, and because he won't listen to the scientists. That's the other thing I always say, because he won't listen to scientists. Play clip 10 here, Mark. You know, first of all, I want to say we need more of a national strategy. That right where I live, Toledo, Ohio's border is half an hour away. That we don't have it. The virus doesn't know, oops, these rules here, these rules there, or a person doesn't. We need to have a more national, regional strategy. And I wish you would stop denouncing scientists for giving us facts and work with us to have a plan that takes science, takes these facts into account. And how do we do things safely? That's what we need. Do science in facts. Come on. Uh, she's Ohio. She's not a youper from Michigan. She's Ohio. But she has science in facts. Um, people that know nothing about... Forget about knowing nothing about science, actually. There are so many who have no intellectual curiosity, no uh, reservoir nor thirst for knowledge, who just love to lecture everybody about, listen to the scientists. Uh, well, that's because then the next line is always what we hear here from uh, Elizabeth Warren, for example, who's just saying, you didn't listen to scientists. So that's why everyone's dying. Here's Elizabeth Warren doing what we knew she would do. Play four. The president needs to stop pretending that if he just ignores bad news, it will go away. It won't. The time for magical thinking is over here. President Trump must acknowledge that the federal response has been insufficient and that more people are dying as a result. We are running out of time to save lives, and we need to act now. So thank you, Dr. Fauci, for all you're doing. 
I appreciate it, but the urgency of the moment could not be clear. You notice there's so much incoherence with all of this. Running out of time to save lives. We've been told now that we've lost 80,000 lives already. So and, and we're doing the lockdown. We're doing what they we have done, what the scientists, what the experts told us to do for two months. We've lost 80,000 people. And, and now when we want to try to do something else, it's you want people to die. Notice that we don't blame the lockdown people for the 80,000 deaths that have happened from COVID-19. Although you, you could start to make a case about in certain areas. Was that was that. Uh, the most effective, forget the most effective strategy. Did people die because of the stupidity of the across the board lockdown? You can ask that question. It's a real question worth asking. Meaning, instead of focusing on protecting people in nursing homes, acting like everybody's at equal risk from this thing, was that intelligent? Was that the smartest thing to do? Or did people die because of that decision? In New York, it almost looks like people certainly died because of the Governor Cuomo order given that even if they think somebody coming out of a nursing home has COVID-19, I'm sorry, coming out of a hospital has COVID-19, they should be taken in by the nursing home. Oh, and also there's a, there's a rule that there was, uh, people have figured out now that nursing homes have no liability for this now. So nursing homes were told, take people, but don't worry, you can't get sued if everybody gets COVID-19 and, you know, 50, 100 people die because you took somebody in from a hospital that you knew had COVID-19 in the highest risk population you could possibly find of, of older people. So we need to have these discussions right now about how right have the scientists been, how, how correct uh, have their prognostications been up to this point. And this is where I, I just have to say, you know, they, they keep telling us to listen to them. You have this whole debate now over masks. L.A. sent out a, a note to its residents uh, Los Angeles is not telling everybody you have to wear a mask if you leave your house, period. That's their guy. If you leave your house, wear a mask. This is nuts. If you leave your house, wear a mask. Uh, the, the risk of getting this virus or giving this virus to somebody in open air is almost zero. And if we're going to start change, if we're going to destroy people's freedom because of minute risk, if we're going to eradicate reason rational thought sanity in how we approach risk in our day-to-day lives we have been transformed inherently been transformed into a turnkey totalitarian society there is nothing this is why the libs love climate change so much because climate change is existential for the world everyone's life is at stake so you better recycle And take that bicycle to work instead of the car and drive a Prius instead of a car that doesn't look like, you know, somebody fell asleep at the design table. You know, that's that's what it is. They can control every aspect of your life. Well, now with COVID, now they really can control every aspect of your life because it's not saving lives 100 years from now. It's saving lives right now. Yeah, these people are, are scary. And I'm going to ask you this because I've started to see some analyses popping around about, uh, you know, was was the lockdown effective? You know, we, we were told lockdowns effective. I, I've read through histories of the Spanish influenza of 1918. They did a whole bunch of lockdowns. Did nothing. They were locked. Some places locked down and got decimated. Some places didn't lock down and get decimated. And some places were fine. With a lockdown or without a lockdown. I mean, it really, you know, you look at this, when I say fine, I mean, they were, they were hit far less badly. 
And this is true about countries right now. Japan didn't have a lockdown. Why does Japan have basically no problem with this? They didn't shut down all their businesses. They were early on this and identifying it and and trying to prepare for it in some ways. But they, you know, there are so many factors here. Climate, average health of the citizens, population density. There are all these things that we know affect the spread of this, the severity of it. Age, average age of the population. Why have countries uh, that have been exposed to this? You know, here's here's a question I haven't seen anybody able to really answer yet. Why hasn't Africa been hit really badly by this disease? It, it ex- they have cases of it. You want to say, oh, Buck, they don't have population density. Really? Go hang out in Lagos or Abuja, Nigeria for a while and tell me about population density. They have incredibly dense environments with very poor public health systems. Why haven't now I'm I am posing questions that I don't have answers to. I'm not an expert, but for people to pretend that the experts who are saying lockdown, 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 know what they're talking about. If they knew, if they weren't just theorizing, if they knew they would be able to explain this in a way that you would sit there and say or I would sit there and say, okay, that makes sense. They can't. They can't. There are some countries that have been hit very, 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 very badly by this and other countries that seem to be just about OK. Climate certainly plays a role, not climate change, climate, but actual like hot, cold day to day certainly plays a role in this. Everyone who's been pointing to Australia. Yeah, this the outbreak started during Australia's summer. So that makes things a whole lot better for them. Started during our flu season, our winter. One of the reasons we got, we got hit so badly. I'd be very curious to see. You know, I know they have all these stringent measures in place now, but we'll see if, if Australia has, you know, hopefully it doesn't, but we'll see if Australia has a more difficult outbreak now that the weather turns in the Southern Hemisphere. So, but they, they can't answer these questions for you. They, they don't know why it is so bad in some places and not, you know, Brazil has not been hit that badly with this. So someone explained to me if, why we must take it on faith that the lockdowns that are destroying the economy and ruining lives are even a good idea. Never put aside necessary that these are even intelligent things to do. Hand washing, I'm down. Masks in certain circumstances, sure, it's not that big an imposition. Mask all the time, no. Protect vulnerable populations, yes. Try to... Be in less super dense uh, environments, sure. Can't go and operate your business. Can't cut hair. Why? You know, can't sell flowers, can't sell clothing. You can't engage in what, you know, doctors have to shut down their offices if they're not dealing with COVID-19 patients. Whose idea was this again? This is what our public health community comes up with. You know, ask this question too. Notice how, we, we look at this and we're supposed to be able to be presented with data because these are sciences. We're supposed to be able to say, show me why this was a good idea. And they're just they turn around, they yell at you and say, you know, be quiet, peasant. You're, you don't have the same background that we do on this issue. Oh, the old appeal to authority routine, huh? I don't think that's going to work all that much longer. And now, of course, there's the they want to politicize this and, and make, they want to stay locked down until November if they can, or at least as close to it as possible. They want to make sure that people are, you know, people are fed and that there's money flowing through the system because it creates 
a dependency on government that they know they'll be able to exploit for generations to come. And then beyond that, once 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 uh, Biden comes in, look at what happened with Obama. Obama takes over and all he has to do is essentially be president and the cyclical recession the Bush administration did the bailouts. The Bush administration saved the banks from failing. Obama just had to be there and he came in at the worst possible time. And over time, it was slow. It was a weak. It was a, a poor recovery. But, yeah, the 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 upswing was going to happen. So he was always able to say, well, when I came in, things were terrible. Right. Which meant, yeah, things are going to get a little bit better than where they are. So when Biden comes in, what they want is the same effect. We'll say this guy's a moron and his policies are terrible. And they'll say, aren't things getting better now? And we'll say, but hold on. But the economy, you kept the economy shut down for months and months. And that'll just be, ah, that, 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 that doesn't matter. It's getting better. Look at the numbers now. Biden's improving things. It's not just narrative creation. Narrative creation leads to reality creation when you're talking about government, media perception. These, these, this is power. This isn't just what people say. This is what people think. And what people think leads to what they do and how they can be controlled. Those are the stakes right now as we're trying to figure out how to reopen this country and the people that are trying to shut this thing down are playing hardball. I mean, keep it shut down. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. There's a statute. There's a 1947 statute that says Nancy Pelosi would yield all of the powers of the presidency if the president and the vice president could not. Consistent with the law, she could issue whatever executive order she wanted, fire disfavored political appointees, and in general, direct the executive branch as she pleased. She's third in line. Uh, it's never going to happen. We'll keep our vice president very healthy, and I'll stay healthy. Uh, never going to happen. She would be a disaster. It's, look, Nancy Pelosi's a disaster, okay? Even doing a thing like that with her crazy vote, what she wants to do is get involved with the voting. She just got back to Washington. Everybody said, what, what was so long? She just got back here. Uh, so let's just see how it all works out. So but I think we're going to have a great election. I'm getting really good poll numbers. For the most part, they're not being shown. And I saw Joe Biden on television yesterday. And if you watch him, he knows nothing. He knows absolutely nothing. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much, that's all Trump's line really has to be about Biden. I mean, this guy really is a know-nothing. I mean, he's, he is in, in the ultimate empty suit. Just a lot of bluster, a lot of, you know, the first two lines of the executive summary that's what this guy gives you all the time, you know. This thing, you know, we need to do things and come together in America and the people and the blah blah. It's just all silliness. But MSNBC thinks that Biden's just great. Play sixteen. The president and his people sit around saying, Joe Biden's in his basement. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I don't recommend you do this. But if you watch Trump TV, you know, their YouTube channel, he's on, they have an hour oh, every night God. on Trump TV right now. It's reaching a lot of people. Go spend some time and watch it. McConnell was on there the other night with Laura Trump. That's where he made this news where he attacked Obama. If you watch that channel and see what they're, the, the messages they're driving about Joe Biden, it's he's in his basement. He's old. He's infirm. He's sleepy Joe. He might be senile. It's over over and over again they're hammering this stuff and you think about that message and then you look at what's happening in the polls joe biden's sitting in his basement according to donald trump and still beating him on almost every metric that counts in terms of the data right now now that does not mean that donald trump can't win this election he can win this election okay we get it right now this is what i think is fascinating 
We all know that the Democrats and Republicans, you could put any candidate forward and it would be a close race. I mean, you could actually put forward a candidate who all we knew about him. His name is Bob and he's a guy and he's running for president as a Democrat. And you get 49 percent of the country to vote for this random imbecile. So Joe Biden just happens to be the random imbecile here. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collectively, we've already uh, spent about, or in the process of spending about $2.8 trillion. We now have a debt the size of our economy. So I have said, and the president has said as well, that we need to take a pause here and take a look at what we've done, see what's working, see what isn't, and also begin to encourage the governors around the country who have the decision-making ability to begin to open up the economy. But they don't want to have to do that because they think that if they can keep their states uh, fed via the federal trough, if they can keep New York and California going at a subdued level, um, even if, remember, they don't have to keep it locked down all the way to November to affect November. Even another, another month, another six weeks, is that a price you don't think? They've already done this to us for two months. You don't think they're willing to drag this out for another six weeks if it means that the chance of, of Trump winning is dramatically reduced, winning re-election? And I know I don't want to sit here and have to have to look at this in those terms. It's absurd. But that's what's going on. Right? So we might as well accept, we might as well recognize the truth about what the other side is planning here and try to meet them you know, on the battlefield where they're actually fighting. This is political. As I've already said to you, they can't even explain why why these shutdowns work in some countries and not in others or why some countries that didn't shut down seem to be fine. And I'm not saying, you know, maybe maybe they do have answers. I just haven't heard them yet. And I'd like to hear them. You know, Barstool President Dave Portnoy has a fantastic rant on this. I shared it on Twitter we, we don't we didn't play it here on the show, but, um, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of salty language. Mr. Mr. Portnoy uses some of the salty language, a lot of it. But it's a great rant. He's basically just like, look, you know, we were told flatten the curve. And now we've extended into this never, never land of we'll, we'll just keep doing this until we have a cure or a vaccine. And he says, well, we don't even have a cure for cures for other things that are really bad that are out there that have been in, that have been in existence for decades. There's no certainty at all that there will be a vaccine for this in a year or in 10 years. So what are we really doing to ourselves? And then he says, look, if you're telling me this is speaking as Mr. Portnoy here. But if you're telling me that my business, you know, Barstool Sports would he says he's fine. But he says if it was going to go away or I have to take my chances with COVID-19, I'm taking my chances. That that's his. And he says a lot of people, I think, feel the same way. And they do. Right. If you're if you're telling me that I can watch the dissolution of the American economy, mass poverty, never mind the poverty around the world. The L.A. Times has a piece that says that uh, there are 100 million people plus who are at risk of starvation, starvation, dying from hunger, a horrible way to go because of the economic catastrophe. That is a self-inflicted one. This is a self-inflicted economic catastrophe. The virus is one thing. Yeah, the virus would have hurt economies. No question. But the shutdowns, 
the shutdowns have crushed economies and forced incalculable economic damage onto all of us. Do you think that they're ever going to admit that this was a bad idea? What what do you think we would do to the political class in this country if they had to come out and say to us, you know what? Yeah, that was that was our bad. Shouldn't have done it. And I've I've said it to you and you I don't think that there's a counter argument to this. The extension of the shutdown um, was the first time that I ever saw Trump because of public pressure, because of pressure from people that hate him and don't have not just his interest, don't have the interest of the country at heart that he said, OK, fine, I give. We'll 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 extend this out. Now, you, there would have been a fight with the states. I'm not saying it was in his hands to make the shutdowns go away entirely because it wasn't. But he gave them so much more cover to extend and extend and extend. And Dave Portnoy is just telling everybody, this is nuts. And it is nuts. And the people that are pushing this are wrong. And this formulation they have for you will do what we say. You will not open your business. You will not go outside without a protective covering on your face. Go outside at all. That's what they're saying in Los Angeles. And in New York, if you go outside without a mask on, people look at you kind of funny. Trust me, I know I'm here. Uh, but but you, you must do these things because it's not about your risk. It's about risk that we're assessing for other people. So we're making the determination for you that you're not allowed to live your life in any freedom whatsoever because you just breathing is a risk to other human beings. That's what they're telling you. That is ultimately what's going on here. And that's how we get to a point where we have an economic freefall that as it is calculated uh, today is at 36.5 million people without jobs, almost 3 million more than last week. And it's just the official number. I mean, this is, <laughs> is hard to imagine what this is going to do. And I, I don't know. I, I, I hate to get ahead of where things are right now with how bad things are going to get. But the virus will the virus we will get through. A society can, I'm 100% sure, survive a disease that 99% plus of people who are infected with it survive. A society can survive that. And that's just in mathematical certainty, right? You know that you can survive. Can a society endure if its uh, political class is shown to be a bunch of reckless and stupid authoritarians who sees endless power in their hands at the first opportunity and who destroy the economy that they inherited from the generations and the people that came before them. They destroy that. And we have an end to the dominance of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. We have an end to the I mean, it's hard to even war game what will happen to the economy if they keep doing this. They keep dragging us through this. Look, ultimately, I think the if it saves just one life crowd, we'll have to just shut up because people will get tired of this. They'll figure it out. But people are figuring this out too slowly. That's my problem. They're learning the lessons here too slowly. And you know, for, for Democrats, this is I really believe that there, there's a, another fear, not just of the economy of COVID-19 that's motivating a lot of this. And it's the fear of them having to psychologically bear the burden of four more years of a Trump administration. I think there are people, and I mean this, there are adults who are, in a clinical sense, terrified of that. 
in a clinical sense, it, it keeps them up at night and, and they have physical anxiety symptoms from the idea of Trump being president for four more years. And so, you know, if they can ride it out in their house somewhere, if they've got enough savings in the bank and whatever, they're like, hey, we only got to do this for another month or two. And Donald Trump doesn't get to be president again. That seems like a fair trade. I think there are millions of people who believe that. And, and that, that is part of their thought process right now. That is directing their thought process on this issue. Meanwhile, they're, they're pretending to care about the folks who are economically getting crushed by this because they know who is really being hurt. It's not celebrities in 15,000 square foot second homes. They're not the ones that are suffering. It's people that have no savings and no job security and lost their jobs and now have nothing and can't go outside and don't have comfortable living situations that they're staying in. You know, but here's Joe Biden letting you know that, oh, yeah, blue collar Joe really cares about the working class. Play three. Look, the people who are getting hurt are, are Democrats, hardworking people, the people who can't afford to stay home, the people who are getting clobbered, the people who are making an hourly wage, the people who are out there saving our lives, carrying the country on their back and losing lives in the process of doing it. They're the people who are in trouble. A lot of millionaires aren't in trouble. People making tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars, they're not in trouble. What's, the people who are in trouble are the very people that are our constituency, number one. Democrat constituencies? Really? I think some of them may change that calculation. We just had these, uh, we had these, uh, this Republican congressional special election. I'm sorry, this congressional special election where a Republican won. Didn't see any media coverage of it, of course. I think people are going to, you know, this, this is the hope that I have. Is that enough? I mean, the, the, the left wing ideologues, the people that are, you know, just not my president and hashtag science and all, all this stuff. You're never going to be able to convince them that, you know, Donald Trump wasn't out there, you know, injecting people with COVID-19 on purpose, basically. I mean, they're completely out of their minds. It doesn't matter. But for those who will be the difference makers in Ohio and Florida, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, for those folks, I truly hope that they understand Who's really pushing for maximum suffering, economic suffering for those uh, who have lost their jobs right now by extending all of this? It is the Democrats. This has become a partisan issue now. You have the reopen Republicans and the lockdown left. That is that is going on across the country. And the more we learn about this disease, the more we realize they can't protect you from it. It's going to be out there anyway. There's no vaccine in the near term. There may never be a vaccine. Our therapeutics are basically garbage. Um, that's where we are. So what do we do? You're going to hide in your you're going to hide you know in your home in your in your bedroom for another three months. People are going to lose their minds. So I'm I'm happy that we're seeing this pushback. I'm happy that there's this lockdown rebellion that is growing across the country. And I've been thinking to myself, too, what, what happens if they start fining or even arresting people who won't wear masks, walk around in public? Am I going to be am I going to engage in civil disobedience? Maybe. I mean, my business doesn't my business is, is this. It's you. It's talking to all of you. So that that won't be affected. That, that's not affected by the lockdown. Obviously, that's why I'm fortunate enough to be able to continue, although look, revenue across the board for media is way down, even though ratings are up. Revenue is way down because. Media is just a marketing platform. You always have to remember this. Media is a marketing platform for companies that actually make stuff. You know, me, media as we consume it, unless you're talking about direct subscription, which is also part of it, but anything that's advertiser-based, 
it means that the the media products you're watching are are really marketing platforms for other products, actual products that you buy. Uh, and so when that's all down, because the economy is in <clears throat> such bad shape, it affects the ability of media platforms to make money, too. Um, but the the unemployment, we, we have uh, put ourselves into a depression and Democrats want us to crawl out of it as slowly as possible because of the electoral timing of all this. That's just the truth. And they figure that the federal government will. Oh, they, they, they want to make sure that the blue, the blue states and blue cities that are going to drag this out as long as they can. You, wherever you are across the country, you're going to be paying for this with your tax dollars. Here's the mayor of New York telling everybody that there better be a huge federal bailout for New York or else those, there's not going to be a recovery. Play eight. We cannot recover without this stimulus, period. Right now, what I have lost in this city, the human loss first, the families, the people are suffering first, but then think about what it means for our future that we've already lost $7.4 billion already in terms of our city revenue that pays for cops and firefighters and healthcare workers and teachers. That's just after 10 weeks. We'll think where this is going. So if our federal government doesn't step in and fill that gap and help cities and states back on their feet, there won't be a recovery. There won't be a recovery. People will suffer much longer. Why is there even that word stimulus? It is uh, the idea of putting people back on their feet, recreating the energy of our economy, getting people back to work. That's why the concept of stimulus was invented to begin with. And it will only happen if the president says that it needs to happen. We know the Senate will act if the president says to. But without that stimulus, there is no recovery. It's as simple as that. More federal dollars, more money going in. It's not even really your taxes. It's your children, your children's children uh, and, and their, you know, their ability to provide for themselves and make a living. That, that's what's really at issue here. But their plan is to just keep on, uh, you know, using, relying on the federal government money lifeline. The, the Treasury money tree is going to just keep getting shook until well, as late in the process as they can. And they'll turn around and say, see, look at how many people died, how bad the economy is. Trump is terrible. Vote Biden. That's the whole plan. We see it. That is the whole plan. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We all remember the horrible shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And we also remember that there were people on site who had firearms and whose job it was to protect those kids. And they did nothing. I mean, some of them just did Nothing. Well, one of them uh, who was fired just got his job reinstated thanks to the union. This is from the Miami Herald. The Broward Sheriff's Office sergeant, who was the first supervisor to respond to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting and lost his job after it was found he hid behind his car as the first shots rang out, will be reinstated, awarded full back pay and get back his seniority. Sergeant Brian Miller was one of the four deputies who were terminated because of a neglect of duty in the February 14, 2018 Parkland shooting, which killed 17 students and faculty members and injured another 17. Miller was paid one hundred and thirty eight thousand four hundred and ten dollars in 2017. Man, producer Mark, I got to become a, a Broward sh- sh- sergeant. Yeah, I'll hide behind my car for half of that. Yeah. Wow. An arbitration ruling, union stuff, of course, found that uh, 
The Broward Sheriff's Office violated Brian's constitutional due process rights and improperly terminated him. Um, this, this is just stunning. Uh, so here you go. The, this takes us back into the situation here. Then Sheriff Scott Israel faced backlash from Broward Deputies Association President Jeff Bell, um, who said at the time that Israel was, go- was going after deputies and sergeants by suspending them, but allowed Captain Jan Jordan to resign. Jordan took charge of the scene. She arrived within seven minutes of the first shots being fired and did not urge deputies to go into the school. Deputies Edward Eason, Joshua Stambaugh, Scott Peterson, and Miller were all fired months after the shootings. The sheriff's office internal investigation found they all failed in their duties. According to a report by the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, which investigated the shootings, Miller was the first supervisor to respond. He arrived as shots were being fired. He hid behind his police cruiser and did not radio in for 10 minutes. Pretty amazing, isn't it? The Broward uh, Police Union, look, unions, public sector unions are a problem, folks. Broward Police Union is making sure that, you know, you, you can't be fired for cowardice as a police officer. That's what they're saying, because this was this was cowardice. It absolutely was. And I've I've uh, had one or two testy exchanges here when we used to take callers on the radio show. Someone's, oh, you know, you don't know. No, I'm sorry. You've got a gun, you're a law enforcement officer, and there are kids being shot up in a school, and you're not going to do anything about it? That's, that's, if that's not cowardice, there's no such thing as cowardice. But, yeah, here we are. Here we are. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, this is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, uh, look, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real dark spot here. It's a real bad moment for, uh, for a law enforcement community. This was really bad. Uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting was also really bad. I mean, there's some stuff here, folks. It's look, I know it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but if we're not going to expect sheriff's deputies at a school shooting who have guns when they arrive to at least try, I mean, I'm not, if you're outgunned or, you know, you're taking fire and you got to cover, I get that. You're not even going to go and investigate. You're just going to sit there. You're going to tell people, you know, citizens, they don't want to carry guns all around them. Florida is better than at least New York is, but you're not going to go in there and do anything. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. All right, team. Remember to go to BuckSexton.com. We post stories there. Also, you can listen to the podcast there. Podcast numbers up pretty big last month. We appreciate that. Please continue to spread the word. Tell people about the show and what we do here. It's the best way that people learn about this. It's why we keep growing. It's why producer Mark and I still have jobs. Uh, so with that, Facebook.com slash BuckSexton if you want to send messages to us or TeamBuck at iHeartMedia.com if you wish to email. Let's get to it. John writes, hey, Buck. I am listening to the segment from Tuesday on the Aubrey shooting. The part that I have a hard time with, and I'm sure many others have as well, is that Aubrey ran up to a truck with obviously armed men in it, then chose to punch the son in the face as he got to the front of the truck and fought with him over the gun at that, as that same gun went off. It could have went off from the physical altercation. Unless the father and son were verbally threatening Aubrey with physical harm, I don't see how open carrying a weapon in self-defense 
while questioning someone is a pass for Arbery to assault the father and son. Once uh, Arbery chose to attack them, I don't see the logical outcome other than the father and son defending themselves. On the flip side, if Arbery would have won the altercation and killed the father and son, I don't see how Arbery would be charged with murder himself. Thoughts? Well, John... Uh, this this goes to, uh, you know, first of all, the, you know, the video is not a perfect it, I've watched it a few times. It doesn't show, at least from what I could see, exactly what went down there. But you, you don't I, I don't there's no right to pull over on the high on a road and brandish two shotguns and demand to speak to somebody. That that does not exist. This guy was on public property. He was not he was not on there. I mean, one thing, if someone's, you know, on your front lawn or if they're, you know, that's a different thing. This guy's on a public road and he's jogging and they are demanding and, and they're they the big question that I would want to know is, are they brandishing? Right. You know, I mean, if, if you if you want to know what brandishing is, someone sits down, and they say, hey, you know, uh, you're making a lot of noise last night. You know, I'm your neighbor. You're making a lot of noise last night. I need you to stop. That's one thing. If someone sits down and says, hey, you're making a lot of noise last night, and they take out, you know, a 357, and they put it on the table in front of you, and they say, you might want to quiet down a little bit, right? I mean, that's, and they're pointing the gun at you, that's brandishing. That's not okay. Uh, you know, you can't point a weapon at somebody and say, hey, I need to talk to you. Uh, that's, that's not how this goes. And, you know, that's what, this is where the every little bit of this is going to be deconstructed and looked at very closely um but also why why are they there weren't burglaries in the neighborhood that's already been established there weren't recent burglaries at least uh looking at an open construction site is i mean i've done it this is not something that is so strange or weird at all it's certainly not some terrible crime that anybody would get you know you wouldn't think anybody would get in trouble with this they didn't do anything there was no crime really you could try to say there's trespassing but i mean if you want to be annoying about that, there's a lot of trespassing goes on all the time that no one, you know, it's a no, usually trespassing is considered a no harm, no foul situation. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that uh, if you instigate, if you on false pretenses instigate an incident that, that involves uh, lethal use of force, I think you should be held accountable for that. You know, you can't just draw down on people if you're, if, you know, it's a, it's a, everyone who knows, everyone who's a open carry or, or who's a firearms owner listening to this knows it's a big responsibility to carry a firearm, to be somebody who's going to exercise their Second Amendment rights. And if you're a concealed carry holder, there's responsibility that comes with that. You don't get to say, oh, you know, I, you know, I was concealed carry and I got a little drunk and I just, you know, popped off a couple of rounds in the sky. I mean, yeah, that's how people go to prison for a long time. And I know you all know that, but there's a responsibility that goes along with it. And you, you do not. And I know these guys had shotguns, but you don't you don't get to wave shotguns in people's faces when you're. You know, if you're not defending yourself, mm-mm. look, they from what I see, these guys started it and it was unnecessary and it, it looks very bad. And there's a reason, you know, this video shows, obviously, that this looks really bad. And also the whole thing, the guy's standing in the back of the truck. I mean, that's a threatening. Well, what is he doing? You know, what, what, why? And, and why are they bothering this guy in the first place? They, they want to talk to him? I'm sorry. It's not okay. They, I think they, they, they thought they were putting on their little fake cop hats. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Um, very dangerous thing to do. And a man lost his life in it. And it's, a, and it's a tragedy. And it shouldn't have happened. There was no need for this. There was no need for it. And I think people need to be held accountable. If there's new evidence, new information, or a new theory of the case, 
Of course, I want to hear that, and I'll return to it. But for right now, I think I think this is proceeding with the charges. I think this is proceeding as it should. I got to tell you. And if you guys think I'm wrong, please let me know why. Don't just tell me I'm wrong. Let me know why I'm wrong. Let me know what. Because I can tell you this: if I'm jogging down the road and someone uh, has a shotgun and they're insisting on talking to me, I, I think I'm under threat right away. That's th- that is threatening. This is a stranger. You're in a public space. You know. They, they don't you don't know who they are. You don't know what their intent is. You clearly don't have a firearm. You're jogging. I mean, I mean, maybe you could have a you know something strapped in somewhere. It's very unlikely. So what's going on here? I, I would be under I would be nervous about that. I'm never nervous about people carrying firearms. Or, I mean, I, I carried firearms. I've carried some pretty interesting stuff in my day, but never carried anything like and never uh, would do anything like this. This is absurd. Anyway, I'm I mean, I, I just mean stopping somebody when I have a gun and say, hey, I need to talk to you. Hmm? Jeff Buck, I've been listening to your radio show for a few years now. First on KFAB in Omaha. Woo! Love, love KFAB Omaha. That's one of our first stations where we really showed great traction on the Buck Sexton show, you know, four years ago now. So thank you to everybody in the KFAB family one for for keeping us on the air there and also just for making this a really successful show in Omaha, Nebraska. I got to get out to Omaha. Producer Mark, you ever been out there? I have not. You know that 311, the uh, band from the 90s, is from Omaha? Really? Yes. That's very interesting. Yeah, they actually have a pretty fantastic music scene out there, from what I understand. You know, like, it's like the Nashville of Nebraska. Yeah, people think that uh, Nebraska's kind of nothing there, so uh, I guess whoa, that's surprising. Oh, hey, hey, oh, oh, hey, producer Mark, but we love, hey, we love... I'm Kansas not saying I don't Omaha. love... Oh, I'm, what I'm saying is people think that it's nothing, but there actually right, are right, things right. there. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's, dude, Omaha is a cool town. Uh, I want to go out there and check it out for sure. So anyway, he writes, oh, and of course, Freedom 93.7 in Denver. Yeah, yeah. Number one on our time slot. Thank you, Denver. We love you. We love you. I'm a musician and a part-time college professor. With current situation, of course, all of my teaching is done online and my performances have been canceled. So I picked up another job delivering packages for Amazon. I deliver all over northern Colorado, Greeley, Loveland, Longmont, etc., and a lot of rural deliveries in between those smaller cities. While I'm grateful for the extra work and income, I have to say that it seems that Amazon cares much more about virtue signaling to its customers than they do about the safety of delivery drivers. We're now required to wear masks at all times when working for Amazon. Never mind that there's absolutely no benefit for wearing a mask when you're alone and outside. No consideration has been taken for those of us that wear glasses and have to deal with fogged up glasses. Obviously, when driving, that is a real safety issue. I learned recently that Amazon is actively encouraging its customers to tattle on delivery drivers that are not wearing masks. I think it's really sad that a portion of our culture has become so fearful and petty that being a tattletale is something that is being actively encouraged. However, I'm encouraged that majority of the people I see across northern Colorado are not this way. At least some people still value common sense and personal responsibility. Shields high. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for that perspective. I mean, it's really useful for us to hear what people are going through in different parts of the country with this. And yeah, wearing a mask in a car by yourself is absurd. You're protecting nobody. And it is dangerous, especially if you well, if you wear glasses, it's dangerous because I I try to wear sunglasses with my mask recently because I was social distance walking along somebody, one of my parents who, you know, wants to be very cautious about about their health. And uh, it's really producer Mark. Have you had sunglasses on yet when you had the mask on? You, you, you yes. fog them up within three breaths. You can't see anything. Oh, yeah. And I usually only wear sunglasses when I'm driving. So I'm like, I can't even bother to put the mask on while I'm driving. Yeah. No, it's it's not 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 a safe thing at all. So how are we going to deal with that? 
I ask you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, so there's a news story that I did not see, and I, I, I'm having a hard, a hard time believing it, but producer Mark has brought to my attention, oh my God, it's real. There is a, a Chicago area woman was mauled to death by her French bulldog? Mark, this is yeah. like being eaten by a chihuahua. How could this happen? I mean, apparently it was a 55-pound French bulldog, if that helps. Urso, who weighed 120 pounds, was found with a very large percent of her body covered in injuries. Urso had two French bulldogs and one border collie mix. Cooper said, this is from People magazine, Cooper said both of Urso's French bulldogs were found with blood on them. Oh, my God. We know one is an aggressive dog who had bitten someone before. The larger French bulldog, Blue, is two years old and weighs 55 pounds. Oh, here we go. There are reports that Blue was rescued from a dog fighting ring. Folks. Oh, okay. I mean, still. Folks, once dogs, I, I hate to say this, I was near a dog that was a rescue once upstate, and these people had built this huge fence enclosure and stuff for it, and that thing leaped at me. Cause I move, I just moved my leg, like my knee a little bit in a way that it didn't like. And it went, it went right for my throat. I will never forget it. And the dog had been abused. Dogs that have been abused are, yeah, you gotta be super, I mean, they're animals and you have to be super careful around them. It's very hard to un, to deprogram that. So that's not, first of all, this dog is twice the size of a normal French bulldog. French bulldogs are like, this is like someone getting, you know, eat, eaten by their, by their beloved cat. I mean, this doesn't happen. Um, but if, it, if an animal has been abused and, and has been bred for fighting, as this dog apparently was at 55 pounds, look, bulldogs, we think of them as just being so cute and everything else. You know, producer Mark, bulldogs originally, they were larger and heavier and their jaw, they were bred to have this dwarf gene, which is what uh, brachycephalic is. And they would actually do something called uh, they would bull bait where they would have a bull and they would attack it with with bulldogs. That's crazy. And they would latch onto it. Oh and grab it and try to bring the bull down and kill it. And the bull would fight. And this is what people, I mean, this is what they would watch. Obviously it's messed up. I mean, I'm not that's where the bulldog, bulldog gets its general, name. But What's up? Not a big fan of bulldogs in general. Whoa. Hey, whoa. I mean, Producer you know. Mark. What happened? Did you, did you sleep on the couch last I mean, night? What's Tal- going on Tallulah's here? Tallulah's nice, but you know, I meant like oh a regular bulldog, not a Frenchie. You. Hey, direct all the bulldog owners out there, direct your ire at producer Mark. Well, I mean, call. you have to admit that of all dog breeds, they're on the uglier side. They're ugly. They're so ugly. They're cute, though. Exactly. I don't, I don't even know. Right. But like, if you I have mean, to choose, you're going you're, you're to choose a golden retriever. I love bulldogs for the teeth. So just so you all know, I love bulldogs. I don't know what producer Mark is entitled to his opinion on this one, but I'm just saying. I didn't say I remember- didn't like them. I said they're just a little uglier. Do you remember when years ago, like when people have these animals, sometimes the things go bad and it's really they're, they're so surprised. And you sit there, you go, is this really that surprising, though? The woman who had the chimpanzee in Connecticut. Whew, that was a rough story. That chimpanzee was one hundred and eighty pounds. I mean, yeah, when you take a wild animal in, like if you decided to have a pet cheetah, what do you expect? Yeah, cheetahs are actually not that big, but still. could. Be I mean, big. it was just an example of a, a no, wild I animal. I don't, yeah. I'm just I'm just saying I'm just saying I'm going to tell you, I actually watched the um, uh, the. A Jungle Book with Snow Princess recently. Jungle Book based on the Rudyard Kipling stories. The, the original Disney version of it, you know, it's good. It's not one of the best Disneys, but it's, it's pretty good for what it is. 
But I was always so confused because Baloo the bear looks to me like uh, look, looks kind of like a, a, a grizzly bear or a black bear. And I was like, well, well what what was he? Turns out that actually he is because and this is the tell of the giveaway. He eats ants. He is a um, a sloth or sun bear, which they have in India, which also makes sense because a grizzly bear against Shere Khan, a tiger uh, grizzly bear well, might come out the winner of that, you know, solo. I mean, I actually probably, I don't know. I think I'd probably put my money on a large well, grizzly is just a large brown bear, a large brown bear against the tiger. I don't know. That'd be, that'd be, this is like what the, the, the discussion little kids always have, you know, who would win in a fight. Um, I, I think grizzly bear probably beats tiger, but sun bear in India, they're kind of little. So that's why they're so scared of Shere Khan. So it all makes sense. I'm taking the bear in that fight, by the way. Yeah, I think the, I think the bear, I mean, brown bears are huge. I mean, you know, look, a Siberian tiger can, I think, be up upwards of eight or nine hundred pounds. But I mean, a big grizzly bear is way bigger than that. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying I'm just saying. All right. Let's get back to the actual radio show. <laughs> what am I doing? Mike Buck. I listen every night here in the Twilight Zone of L.A. Thanks for having that doctor on tonight. He's dead on. And I wish he was on more media outlets. By the way, how does someone from Queens say water, water? That's how my ex says it. And it's really annoying not to mention she denies she pronounces it that way. Bruce and Mark, how do you say W-A-T-E-R? How do I say it? Water. Yeah, how did I used to say it? Like water? Yeah, water. Something like that? That's how we say it. That's, hey, that's how we say it in a strong island. I'm from Queens. Always remember and Then that. we drive around in a Dodge Neon listening to the Venga Boys are coming. And we get the, like, the neon lights underneath the car. I almost did buy a Dodge Neon. That was almost my first car, but it ended up not being. There we uh, go. The strong island. And uh, remember when they were, you used to see it for a while. People used to have like neon lights under the car. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Like in the undercarriage. It was That's just like, like a thing. People trick out their cars. I don't understand. Spend the money on your home. You, you, how long do you spend in your car, really? I got to tell you, one, one of my brothers, is a, he loves cars. And he has, a, he has a gorgeous car. And he cares so much about it. And he's a real car guy. And he's done like race car driver training. And he loves cars. I view cars as a conveyance. I just wanted to yes. be comfortable and work. <laughs> I don't really care. I don't know. I'm just not. I'm not a car guy. And I know a lot of people listening probably are. It's just something that I don't. I never had. I don't really care. Like I said I, to my wife the other day, like, if I, why would I buy like a Beamer or something like that? I'd just be so worried I'm going to crash it or that something would happen to it. Somebody would steal it. What am I going to put that kind of what anxiety is, what is on the me? Mark, what is the Mark Mobile? Right now, I don't have a car. Oh. Because I moved to Jersey. So I could so be closer to Manhattan transport. so I could have. Yeah, that worked out yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, things have changed up. But if you if you and Mrs. Mark were to get a car tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, she drives a Chevy. Oh, OK. I guess we kind of share it now, but she mostly drives it. Is it a, a sedan SUV? What is it's it? an SUV. Yeah, we Ooh. both prefer SUVs. But Ooh, like a little, little high I'm up. fine with Chevy, Honda, you know, normal cars. I don't need a BMW or a Lexus or something. Dude, my, my first car was a wood-paneled Roadmaster station wagon, dubbed the Shaggin' Wagon, because there was no oh. Shaggin' in that wagon. And uh, it was amazing. It was um, hard to steer. It, you driving the, you know, on the wheel, it was really like, I, I can't even really explain it other than you got to drive one of those cars. I think it's become kind of a collector's item now, but it looks like you're in a boat, like a wooden boat yep. on the highway. That's how I would describe it. Roadma- I think it was a 1993 pale blue buick roadmaster station wagon that was my first car the shagging wagon yep those were the days hey when you're in college you're the one person that can move around all the furniture in the back of your car everyone loves you that's true all right all right team that's gonna be the show for today we'll be back tomorrow same time and place 
God bless you all. We'll talk soon. Shields high.